I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Liz Ouellette is on the show today. She's got a long career in the vineyards of France, Italy, and as an importer in New York. So, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about you is you've had just so many amazing experiences in the wine world. Uh, how did it start out? You were in Italy? Um, well, the sort of the the real origin of the the beginning, beginning, I would say, would be that I always worked in the restaurant business sort of growing up in high school and stuff, waitressing. I was in the kitchen a little bit. Then I realized that the money's in the front of the house. And True that. You know, and there's no, there, at the time, there was no glory in the back of the house either. I mean, chefs were like it's before top criminals. Chefs and stuff. You know right, I mean? right, right. If you couldn't get a job, you went to a kitchen. <laughs> um, so, so that was sort of my background, just sort of always wanting to have that experience because it's so translatable. No matter where you go, you can always fall back on it kind of thing. And then um, I spent a year in Italy studying. I studied art history. Okay. Which doesn't prepare you for anything, except talking about wine, actually, in fact. It's good if you end up in a museum, but otherwise. Right, exactly. So, spent a year in Italy. Went After I graduated from college, I went to work at the Guggenheim in Venice as an intern. And moved out west to ski for a few years, came then went back to the Guggenheim to do the Biennale because the Guggenheim in Venice owns the American Pavilion oh, I didn't for know the that. Biennale. So, Which is the big art show. Exactly. Every other year, um, international art show where every country chooses an artist to highlight. So um, that was an amazing experience. I got to do the installation. And then I met a girl I was working with said, you know, my boyfriend, I'm like, I'm trying to figure out how to stay in Italy. Oh, okay. And she said, my boyfriend works for Butterfield and Robinson. And I knew the trips because my parents had done them, their friends had done them, but ostensibly, you know, you get paid to bike, hike, eat, and drink your way around Europe. Sounds pretty good. Which was perfect for me because I was always very athletic and I spoke Italian and French, French sort of Italian relatively well. And uh, so that's how it began. My first trip was in the Dolomites, which... Which is in the north. In the north, yeah, Austrian border, basically. It's more Austria than Italy in terms of its vibe. I mean, people wear lederhosen and dirndls and their first and that's language. that's just the guys. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> exactly, <Carol King. laughs> exactly. 
um, their first, well, where I live, their first language was Ladino, which is a Romance dialect, but the, the second language is really German, and then the third is Italian. Um, so that was great, though, because being in the mountains, being someone who's always been very moved by the mountains and loved the lifestyle of the mountains. A skier. Yeah. A skier, hiker, yeah. all that stuff. To combine that with um, being in Italy was really sort of jackpot for me. So I really fell in love right away. And then and this also, was kind of post-college, like 20. Yeah, my 24. early 20s. Uh, well, yeah, 24 I was probably at this point. And then um, I also really connected with one of the families there that owned a hotel. So that just made it very immediate that I had sort of a Italian family that was like my second family there. And um, so that always helped. So I worked for Butterfield for a year guiding in Italy. And then they there was a a job open in Bone. They have a headquarters. They're Canadian, but they have a headquarters in Burgundy. So I got the job as an assistant trip planner and I lived there and for a year. And I had a couple months where I was going to be there and then a couple months where I was going to go home and then come back for a year. And Aaron Cannon, who's now Aaron Shav, was running Kermit Lynch's office. Oh. And she was going to go back to Berkeley for a few months. So she was looking for someone to sublet. I was looking for a place stars aligned and we met and we just were immediate soul sisters like finishing each other's sentences both you know born three days apart youngest girls of catholic families from the midwest i mean it was kind of remarkable amazing you find that in bone yeah exactly and bone at the time was not what it is now it was very this is 15 years ago so um there were there was an international scene, sort of, but I mean, now everybody's sort of been to Burgundy. It was not that case at all then. Um, and there weren't so many books, and there weren't so many Americans. And, absolutely. Um, plus, she's like tied in with the Kermit Lynch thing. I mean, you know, I knew that that was a great experience. So quickly to go back, so then she came back, and we decided to move in together, and we lived together for a year. Um, and so we were c- cooking for Kermit every time he came to town. And, wow. you know, our house wine was Tompier Rosé, and we would go down to see Tompier all the time and, you know, sort of stand in the vineyards and make a little fire, and they'd put mussels on the fire, and when they opened up, we'd dip it in their homemade aioli. And, you know, we were we did harvest at La Pierre a couple times. We went to La Pierre and tasted with the gang of four all the time. And, I mean, I knew it was an amazing experience, but I I didn't know what I would know now about yeah. what Especially I was since doing. now some of those people aren't alive anymore. They're not alive. And uh, I think that, you know, that group of guys from the Beaujolais really obviously have come into, you know, they're famous now. Huge they certainly prominence. weren't then. Everyone's pouring it by the glass. Exactly. People talk about how great the wines are all the time, whereas before they really didn't. Yeah, you couldn't, you didn't have to scramble to find LaPierre, you know, or whatever. So that was. That was an amazing experience. Um, what were those cats like? I mean, what was great? Like? I mean, just they really. There's a spirit in the Beaujolais, and I think even to this day, no matter who you go taste with in the Beaujolais. I mean, Peter Wasserman was the person who warned me later on when I went to see my producers there. You know, be careful because they party there, and they. <laughs> I mean, they will. A good example. I, Aaron and I took Richard, who was one of the guys that ran the store in Berkeley, to see Lapierre. We got there at ten in the morning on a Saturday. We figured, be there for two hours, go have lunch somewhere. Lunchtime comes around. Um, everyone comes by. Not only, you know, all the the Beaujolais winemakers, but 
the literally the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. I mean, everyone in town kind of stopped by. Because he was like a social nex- nexus there. He was like, Very much everybody so. knew him. Yeah, he was kind of the, everything revolved around him in a certain sense. And uh, we were there till probably four in the afternoon. They never served us lunch, which we didn't expect. But for a French person to not stop and have lunch at noon is unheard of. We were, they kept pour, pulling old bottles out of the cellar and popping corks. I mean, it was it was amazing, but by, finally by four o'clock, we could barely stand. I think there was one sausage passed around, you know, at some point. Um, so that was sort of par for the course. And for them, it was just a normal day. Like it wasn't, they weren't at all even trying to show off or anything. It was just like, that's what they did. Wine so, was part of the everyday. Yeah. And they really loved to, to celebrate it. There was a real spirit there. Um, so... And then what happened? I got a job going back. I got offered a job being a regional director to go back to Italy. Oh, okay. At Butterfield. At Butterfield, which was great because my soul was really in Italy. You know, your head is kind of, I still feel this way. My head's in Burgundy, but my heart and my soul are really feel Italy much more so. And so I was happy to go back from that level, but I also felt like my French was just kind of getting there and... My knowledge was just, I mean, just scratching the surface, sort of. And so to have to leave um, was too bad, and I was sad to leave Aaron. But um, I just threw myself into learning about Italian wine at that point because I'd had such an education, not only being with Aaron, but when you're in Burgundy, everybody eats, sleeps, drinks wine. And so just being around people who are sitting there going like, Pilots. You know, Cassis, and I remember the and first... And that's when they're brushing our teeth. Right, like They're in their it, toothpaste, right. and they're like, I'm picking up notes of VA on this. Totally, I'm, I'm totally. totally. And you're just saying, they're like, I don't smell. How do you smell violets, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then before you know it, you kind of are, you know? So I went back and decided to throw myself into all the Italian regions, and, and two of the regions I was the head of were Sicily and Puglia, and those wines were still sort of unknown. So that was really fun to discover yeah, those. Then, I mean. And it was the 90s, so Butterfield didn't have a budget. Um, you mean like you could buy whatever you whatever want. we wanted. Yeah. I mean, the trips were expensive. Money was flowing. Um, so it was a real opportunity for me to spend some money on the best wines in each region, and which wasn't a lot of money at the time. I mean, you're talking Sicily, Puglia, the best wine. How much is it? You right. know, Alto Adige. Um, so, but even like when we went to Tuscany, you could buy Sassicai and you could buy Tignanello and all these wines for like 30 bucks. I mean, right. it wasn't. Um, so... That was so. I went back for probably four years, and um, one winter, the Pizzanini family in the Dolomites, the family I said I was really connected to. Oh, okay. They own a Relayan Chateau hotel that had a one-star Michelin in it, and they were opening a little Enoteca. And they said, you know, do you want to run the Enoteca? You can ski all day, which I did. I skied from like eleven a.m. to four. And then I'd go work at five, and I'd work till two in the morning, and uh, go do it all over again. And so that was a dream. And at the end of the winter, David Boulet came up there. Oh, oh the, the chef from Tribeca. Exactly. And he was opening Danube. And so he was doing research. Like that was his Austrian thing. Exactly. So he was mainly in Austria, but he came to the Alto Adige because Norbert, who was the chef at the One Star Michelin, had worked at the old Boulet. The original one with like Ned and Michel Couvreur and Jean-Luc and all those guys. And he's like, how's Ned? Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I didn't know Ned at the time. So um, so Ugo said to me, you should choose David's wines. And I said... For the um, table, for his dinner. For his dinner. And I said, absolutely not. I don't know anything. Um, you know. And he said, no, no, no. You know more than you think. And you should 
you should go for it. So I did. And luckily, you know, there were only probably four to six really, really good wines in the Alto Adige at that time. So it was kind of easy. I mean, oh, sure. it wasn't like you're in Burgundy or Bordeaux or whatever. Um, and he came in after dinner and he said, would you ever come back and be our assistant sommelier? Oh, wow. And at this point, I was ready to go back to New York. Or I was ready to go home. I was 28. I had been in Europe for about five years. And, um, you know, Italy is so amazing when it's about fantasy and fun. And it was. But then once you start, you're nearing your 30s, you're starting to think about what you want to do. The reality of living in Italy is not you know, it's difficult. You get you can get nothing done. Um, it's all who you know. It's not a meritocracy. So, and I didn't want to end up with an Italian guy and be the American woman at home with the kids while my husband's out gallivanting, which stay at home I knew a lot of those women, you know. Yeah. So it was um, time to go home. And New York was easy because I went to Skidmore, so all my friends lived in the city. Oh, okay. So I arrived the first day and my sommelier was Alexander Adelgasser. Oh, okay. that guy's, uh, he cut quite the broad swath during his career in New York. For sure. And, uh, you know, he's a trip. He's Austrian, very animated guy. Um, and it was really fun. But he also sort of had a reputation for being a little lackadaisical. So um, at the beginning of a night, he'd say, darling, you deal with all the American tables and I'll deal with all the Austrian tables. And I was like, okay, that seems fair. Yeah, sure enough. Yeah. I mean, we were in an Austrian restaurant. However, there were maybe, at best, two two Austrian tables a night, you know? So he'd be out in the bar flirting with women, and I was sort of running you around. You were running around like crazy? Yeah, but that's fair, because that's what you do when, you, you're when you're beginning. You're just, you're like the assistant level. You're the slave, and you should be, you yeah. know? You need to be. So, um, so that was like, and I knew nothing about Austrian wine when they hired me. I mean, I just... And it was an Austrian restaurant. It was Austrian kind of restaurant. big for New York at that time to have an Austrian oh restaurant. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I have an all-Austrian list. I mean, that was sort of at the beginning of the explosion of Austrian wines. And to get to know, you know, Jody Stern and, and obviously awesome. Terry Teese, amazing woman. Um, still a good friend. And Terry Teese. She used to work with Vin Davino And exactly. Teese was bringing in his Austrian stuff. Yeah. And Vin Davino had Canole and FX at the time. And uh, Teese, obviously, a myriad of amazing producers. I got to know Mark Hutchins through that. He's awesome. Yeah, amazing guy, another great friend. And so they, you know, they were all coming in because it was a big deal. And then I remember Andrew Bell had a wine lunch there in the private room. And that's when I first met Ned. And I mean, he still gives me shit about that day. And he was giving me shit even that day, like the first day I met him. How did that go down? Um, you know, I just remember him being like, who are you? Like, where'd you come from? Really? You know? He just like addressed you that way? Well, once the, once the, like the lunch was sort of underway Got and it. I was dealing with the lunch cause it was lunchtime. Alexander wasn't there at lunch. And, uh, you know, if you've been in this business a while and suddenly someone you don't know is pouring you wine, right, right, right. you are sort of like, who the heck are you? Yeah, because you hadn't been around New York that much. You'd been in Italy and France. For sure. And also, you know, there weren't a ton of Psalms then. It wasn't, mm like it is now, where there are a million songs that you're like, where'd these people all come from? And you he know? knew the whole Boulay crew because he had worked exactly. for them. Exactly. That's the other thing. So he knew everyone. Um, so he said, you should come call on me. Come up to Oriol. Oh, to Oriol. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I did. And he he bought some wine, but he wouldn't come in until like five. I was like, what kind of a sommelier of a restaurant of this caliber walks in at five, five thirty? You yeah. know, but that was Ned. Well, I'll tell him. you a secret. Like during his interview, he was like, you know what I really hated about restaurants is that you had to be 
on the floor every night at six. I was like, six? six <laughs> like, like one. Do you mean you know? six a.m. or yeah, six p.m.? Totally. It was like it was six. That's totally. like a vacation six. I know. That's a day off. <laughs> like, what time did you guys start dinner? Seven? Is like Miami or something? I know. Like, what? I know. Amazing. Um, so, uh, yeah. So then I got, so then I went to work for Andrew Bell because I really, um, and he does the master, I mean, does the sommelier association. He does, but he had a small book and I sort of felt like that the restaurant business at that level for me in New York was a little more intense than I wanted. I wanted, all my friends were there. I wanted to go out with them at night and I was going to work when they were coming home from work. And so I wanted more of a daytime gig still being involved in wine and i met andrew and he very graciously offered me a job but at the time that book was like Sommer Champigny, and he had frederick lornay from the jura one of i mean maybe the first guy to bring in jura one mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. first for sure kind of way before it was hip oh yeah and we were selling like trousseau weeks and like you know because now it's a big thing but back then maybe a little now that book would almost be mainstream i think but at the time it certainly was not so um I worked for him for a while, but again, like left after six months. So now I'd had two jobs that only lasted six months. And I felt like I can't keep jumping around. At the same time, when you're really not happy, you know, I don't also believe that you should be sort of wasting time somewhere. Um, So I took a couple months off and I just talked to everyone I knew. I talked to restaurants. I I started working at Blue Hill a little bit. Um, they wanted me to do the wine list, and so I started it working with John, John Slover, who was a waiter yeah, there. Yeah, was that the Slover era? Yeah. He, nice. The beginning team was Slover, me, um, Patrick Watson, and Michelle Pravda, who now own Stinky Vine, Brooklyn Wine Exchange. Oh, sure. Brooklyn, uh, Smith & Vine. They were, like, Patrick was an opera singer, and she was in a band or whatever. Um, and Slover had just come from Boston. Yeah, and, and Slover and Slover was so passionate, and I sort of I remember saying to Dan Barber because Dan, I lived on King Street, which is a very small is. street. It's probably three blocks. It's a block south of Houston, between McDougal and like maybe it goes as far as Washington, maybe only Greenwich. And for some reason, we had all these chefs on the street. I mean, Paul Liebrandt lived on the street, Lynn McNeely, Dan Barber. So, um, but I think I knew Dan. Apart from that, anyway. And um, he said, do you want to do the list? I said, sure. And then as I worked with John, I was like, you know, John really is super passionate, and he's on the floor. And Dan's like, yeah, I was going to talk to you about that. I think he should do it. So that was perfect. So John took that over. And then um, I remember him pairing Riesling with Duck, which at the time seemed very ambitious and strange and was genius, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember having to convince people that, like, off-dry Riesling could go with an entree. That was a big fight And go with a red quote-unquote red meat too. Yeah. i mean it's not really but it's game but you know well that's how they do it there i mean the old alsalesa with the the deer and uh oh, that, the, that makes know. sense yeah but i mean it makes that, sense now i remember you know? fighting like that I fight bet. and like having it be not so intuitive for people i, I bet yeah like it's sweet a lot of disappointed faces where you're like really why don't you get it yeah you yeah know? but well, that's yeah life. sometimes some wins yeah but i mean what was it like in the early days of blue hill um, it was really fun. Um, you know, it, it was exciting and um, it was just such a fun team. I mean, I just, I, to go from Boulay, which is very intense and sort of, um, I would say, I would call it more cutthroat. Like people are not uh-huh. looking, at, they're looking out for themselves and they will 
you know, step on you or throw you under the bus at any time. And the managers are also always sort of yelling at you because they're old French and Belgian yeah. dudes. Like, yeah. you know, That's it's, it's old school. That's yeah. the style. You yeah. you yell at someone to get something done. Um, to go to Blue Hill, which was, you know, run by Franco, who's Australian and everybody. That guy is so nice. Oh, my god, And so not, like, recognized in the business for being, all. like, really cool. Amazing. Very hardworking. Very dedicated. And just really, we had a great time. Like, such a supportive place. It was a joy to go to work. But I was only there a few days a week. And then I was looking for a job. And I talked to everyone. I talked to Restaurant Trade, which Robert Bohr was um, heading up. It was a software for chefs, basically, oh, okay, okay. sort of ahead of its time, didn't really take off. <clears throat> and then um, Camilo Ceballos, who was one of my partners in crime at the time. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah, said, you should talk to Michael and Harmon, Skarnik. And I said, yeah, it's kind of a boys club. I don't know. Because it is kind of a boys club. Actually. Yes, yeah. at the time it really was. But then Wiley, who I was dating at the time, um, said, you know. From Wiley, like WD-50 Wiley. Exactly. He said, um, because his father, Dewey, was the first person to buy wine for me when I was at Andrew Bell. Oh, okay. Which was really great. So he was a, a special place in my heart for many reasons. But Because um, Dewey used to buy the wine for 71 For Clinton. 71. And um, yeah, we can go back to that later. But um, So Camilo said, you know, you should talk to them. And I was like, yeah, I'll go talk to them. Why not? I'm talking to everyone. I might as well. Because I was determined to find a place where I could be for a while. Yeah. And I'd spoken to a lot of other distributors, and I sort of wasn't feeling it. And then um, I went in. I didn't even bring a resume because I was so convinced that I didn't want to work there. But, oh, it was Wiley saying, hey, Wheeler works there. And I knew Wheeler pretty well. Michael he, Wheeler. Yeah. And, you know, he's not a, one of those boys club guys. And right. I was like, he's not well, a locker room kind of snap in the towel kind of guy. Totally. I mean, his email was love vibe at, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, it's Love Vibe at Skernick Wines or something. So I was like, that's a very good point. I mean, if he's, and he's like sort of the king there, then it's got to be a pretty cool place. So I went in, but I still wasn't convinced I wanted to work there. I didn't bring a resume. I remember I had to step over electric guitars to get to <laughs> a chair in Michael's office. And I was like, all right, this might work, you know? Like Jimi Hendrix is there. Yeah, like, totally. Yeah, the office is over there. Exactly. Neil Young's in the corner. Yeah, yeah. Strumming away. Um. And we just got along like a house on fire. I mean, Michael and Harmon and, and I, yeah, all three of us, just really great interview. Like when things just flow, it's just natural. Um, Did they think you're somebody else? You're like, no, I didn't bring a resume. They're like, oh, we thought you were the girl with all the experience. Isn't your like, name Polly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> Welcome to the team, Jeanette. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and as per the theme of my career, like fake it till you make it. Like, yeah, totally. You know, just like. That's my theme. Don't tell them you don't know anything. And right. then just. Hope that you don't get caught and catch up by the time they figure it out. Um, I still feel that way. But um, and then so I went to work for Skernick and I was there for five years and it was wonderful. I mean, I learned everything from those guys. And not only was it an amazing community and really an amazing team. I mean, you had Lerner and Camilo and Tom Lynch and Teresa and Mark Hutchins and Kevin Pike. And I mean, it's like an all-star team. Um but it also, I just learned so much from Michael and Harmon, and, and, you know, they're still very supportive of me, which is lovely. So, um, But that was also, like, the go time for Skarnick. For sure. You it know was, what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, California was hot. They yeah. were just bringing in the grower champagne. That was just kind of happening, that kind of stuff. Definitely. Like, it was, you know, big things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, like, trying to get people, convince people with Mark, who was so passionate that you didn't, he didn't have to do much other than just speak passionately. Yeah. But trying to convince people to buy grower champagne, I mean, forget it. Um, 
Terry really pushed, Terry and the Skurniks obviously really pushed that rock uphill so that I could just waltz in years later and have four grower champagnes and it was, you know. Kind of edgy, kind of hip. Yeah. And like not a big, like people are like, oh good, we were looking for an alternative to Jiminy. You know, like, oh, yeah. You know? And you're like, wow, okay, let's come to this now. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, where exactly. we are in, in a very short period of time. So, I mean, you know, now I think we see the renaissance of like natural wines. Well, at the time, it was more just getting those obscure categories in amongst the big names, you know. Um, people were rocking the yellow label. Yeah. And still, I think in Champagne, it's for most people, it's not an everyday drinking wine, which is too bad. But, um, and then I went to work for Skarnik for five years. That was amazing. And, you know, at the time I was, we had spoken about this a little yesterday, dating Wiley. And that was a real, um, to have a front row seat to, I met him six months into to moving to New York and he had just opened 71 Clinton. So it was before 71 Clinton even exploded. Which was where he really made his name. That was like yes. a big moment. Big moment. And, um, you know, I, the first time we met, I remember he was talking about his girlfriend being allergic to onions. And I was like, what kind of a chef goes out with a girlfriend who's allergic to onions? I love that you just threw it back at totally. him. Totally. I was like, that's know? retarded. You yeah. know? And that was sort of the beginning of our banter that sort of was very much, you know, our relationship for five years. Like a lot of sort of giving each other shit in a, in a great way. And um, You wonder if that, that was the start of molecular gastronomy right there. He's like, how do I take the onions out of the carbonara? How, you know do, what I, I mean? how do I dehydrate them yeah. and make them into powder that you can exactly. maybe add later if you want? Yeah, she can't have fresh onions, but if I dehydrate them exactly. and make them into a powder and then like make it like a, a, a line of Coke across the table, totally. then she's totally into it. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so that was an amazing experience too, to be sort of have a front row seat to not only his career exploding, but... Um, everything that gave us access to, you know, going to Danielle and having Danielle come out and move us in the middle of our dinner because we weren't in a good enough seat. You know, he was so upset that... Which is the classic, you've arrived in New York thing. Oh, my God. We we loved our little banquet in the corner where, you, we, you know, and then suddenly they're like, we're putting you in the pool room. And we're like, right. really? Well, that's what the, that was the power play. Station four, five, six. Let me tell you, I worked the outskirts for a long time. Yeah, I, I saw the horizon. Yeah, yeah. That was that's where they only put the uh, the important people. That's so funny. And then, uh, you know, and you know, he was he had come from John George, so we were with John George a lot, and all this. I mean, it was it was really an amazing, amazing time. And I was out. I was working for Skernick, which were sort of at their apex. And they out. were super connected with all the restaurant crew. Totally. And I was out eight nights a week. You know, just my you know my. Boyfriend didn't get out for work until one in the morning. So what do you do? You go out. Yeah. Um, so that was a very hungover hang hungover time <laughs> and a very fun, fun, fun time. So very different from my lifestyle now. Um, and I remember a tasting group we had. It was Robert Bohr, Ned Benedict, um, Mike Wheeler, Paul Greco, Karen King. Uh, did I say Daniel Erner? Oh yeah, because he was early in the Skernick thing. Yeah, he was like employee number two or something. Yeah, and that was that was really fun. I mean, it was it you know it, it taught me less about tasting blind than about um, profiling people. Yeah, and, big personalities. Yeah, so you would you would you'd be like Robert brought this wine. So it's either that's hilarious Burgundy, Piedmont, or Rhone. Probably Burgundy or Piedmont. So now I can hone this down instead yeah. of being like. Oh, warm this climate, is cool climate. Not Marcinet. Yeah. <laughs> like right. it's gotta be Chambon. Exactly. And God knows it's not Napa Valley. Right, right, right. So, you know, it sort of it got to a point where you'd just be, you know, Paul brought the wine. Oh, it's Riesling. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, right, right. Instead right. of being like, hmm. Another Zierflinder. Hmm. Yes, yeah. exactly. 
so that that was really fun. So a lot of a lot of good memories from that time. And then um, I always kept. I mean, I was you know, Aaron continued to be um, my best friend is still to this day my best friend. And she in the Aaron meantime, Cannon Aaron the Cannon days. from the Kermit days, and. Uh, a couple, of, the end of our year living together in Bone, Jean Louis Chave had asked her to sort of spend a weekend with him somewhere or something. Wow! And she was like, "I can't date him. He's one of our um, our growers." And I was like, "Yeah, but he's Chave. I mean, yeah, but it's, hello." <laughs> and she's like, "Would you want me to date him if he wasn't Jean Louis Chave?" And I'm like, "I wouldn't want you to date Mick Jagger if he wasn't in the Stones, but he right, is." Okay, right, so right. I don't know. Well, I don't I even know. Thought him. Charlie Watts is more of a stand-up guy, but that's, true. Yeah. true. Good point. Yeah, no, I mean, he's nothing like. Mick, obviously, but um, so she didn't date him at the time, and then when she left Kermit, he had gone to California to. Oh, visit. she turned him down. Totally, she was wow. so ethical. God love her. Um, which probably worked to her benefit ultimately in the long run, I would right. imagine. Um, and then um, he went was in Berkeley visiting Eddie Gelsman, who he made he created Moncour with. Oh, okay. And Aaron knew Eddie very well, and they all got together, and then she had was moving to, suddenly she was moving to the Rhone and I got all protective. Like, what do you mean you're moving yeah. to the Rhone? This is happening way <laughs> too fast to for me. You about this. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't even know this man. Exactly. I think Who I, does he hang out with? Totally. Oh, Russo? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, if only, I mean, you know those French winemakers. They don't even they know don't the guys that out. live down the street. Right, 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 right. Much less other, right. I mean, Robert's been very instrumental like, in trying to get those who? guys together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Completely. Um, so I remember being at their kitchen table and uh, Aaron said, you know, I think I said to them, look, your wines are all in different houses. You've got Moncor with Skernick and it gets lost yeah. in that book. It doesn't have anything else that's related to it. So it's sort of this random Cote de that's a price point above the others. And then, um, and it was a little funkier in those days. He was putting more Ved in it. Now it's just Syrah Grenache. Um it had that ugly mustard capsule and that funky label. Yeah, it had a funky like heart thing on it. Exactly. I and, used to think it was like a different shove. I'd be like, oh, right. well, those guys sold that shove, so this must be a different different shove. Is that like the cousin who went yeah. off? And, yeah, because you know there's like Jan Schaub. Exactly. You know, there's people, you know, so I always just thought it was like, I mean, not always, but when I right. first ran across it, I was like, oh, it must be somebody else because the label looks totally different. Totally. It was like a Jackson Pollock does a heart splatter painting on the front and whatever. So. Um, I said, you know, and Ophris was with Weinbow because Kermit had really spearheaded that project with Jean-Louis. And then the Hermitage was with one of those P companies, Pinnacle, Peer, Peerless, whatever. You could just call the order board and order Hermitage any time of the... And they had back vintages because no nobody way. knew. Yeah, I mean, Robert and Ned still tell that story. Like, call the order board, order your 83 Hermitage Blanc, you know, for oh God. $60 or whatever. Um. So I sort of ruined it because I said, get it away from that liquor company. um, Shivrick had it nationally and then Kermit had it in California. And Aaron, and I said, even, you know, no matter who you go with, whether it's Pollen or or Skernick, whatever, it needs to be in a wine company and they all should be under the same umbrella because you'll certainly sell a lot more of the Nagos wines if you've got the Hermitage as part of the package. Um, And so kind of leverage it that way. Well, you know. Or kind of like we let don't, people know we're not supposed up. to say we do that, but you right, know, right, let's right. be honest. That's but you can leverage it both ways. You can mm. be like, "Hey, you support me with Moncour, so well." And like anything, like it's like when Kevin Pike said to me, "Don't have one champagne." When I started Willette Wines, it was you know have a category. Is that what he said? Yeah, he was. That night we came into Danielle. That's when I first met you. Yeah, and you were with Mark Hutchins and yeah, and Jake Halper and Jake Halper. That's right. And Kevin, 
I remember we drank old white shav. You must have had it on the list, maybe. I don't know. I feel like or Kevin brought it. It must have been. Yeah, I don't know because yeah. the corkish thing it. was weird there. So I don't know. Yeah, like they I'm didn't not allow a big it. bring wine. So, I don't yeah, know. I don't really bring wine trust ones. I certainly wouldn't have brought. I remember anything it was like a Danielle. great dinner though. Oh, amazing. And those guys were so helpful to me. I mean, Kevin was like, you know, have something from the Montagna, have something from the Valle de la Marne, have something from Cote de Blanc. You could even have something from Cote de Bar, which is the hot new area. But if you don't have a section, no one's going to pay attention to it. it so if you just be, have one, people like don't think of you as, as a champagne as person. As a specialty. That's so right. They, they go to, to the person. And when you're small, it's good to be known for something, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So I said to them, you know, at least if all the shavs are under one name. So if you've got all the shavs as your Northern Rhone section, you're going to sell more of them together no matter what. That's just the way it works. And so Aaron said, I think I'm going to import the wines for the country. Okay. And do you want to be our distributor? And I sort of sat there for five seconds. And I said, yeah, I, I think I do, you know. And I always knew that I wanted to have my own business. My parents are both entrepreneurs but I had no idea what it would be in. And so um, a friend of mine who's had an amazing life said to me once, you know, when your opportunity comes, if you don't take it, you know, you're not going to get another one. So right. so whether you know what you're doing or not, you just run with it. So again, fake it till you make it. And so then the business took a long time to get off the ground. I'm glad I didn't leave Skarnik. I mean, it took probably a year just to like figure out what FDA approval and price posting and all those things were because I still don't know. I still don't know either. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, there are things to this day where I'm like multiple prices for this. I know, know. I know, and you know, it's Skernick that it's such a perfectly run company that it really they make it look so easy. Mm -hmm, mm. I blame them for making me think I could start my own business. No, just kidding. Um, But it. You know, it isn't, obviously, um, or everyone would do it. but Because um, there's a lot of paperwork, there's yes. different languages, yes. different monetary oh, yeah. denominations. Just a lot of red tape. Once you get in the rhythm of it, it's fine, but you have to sort of find all that out. Um, so then I started, I left. All I had was Shav for um, like nine months, and I would just walk into places with one piece of paper and three wines. And people are like, this is all you have? Yeah, where's yeah. the rest? Oh, short meeting. Right. Yeah, I'll buy but some. if I have to buy, I mean, but I guess if you have to have one wine, not not that yeah. bad, right? Um, so and, it, and it wasn't like that. Like 83 wasn't, I mean, it had, it had gotten popularity by Oh, that for point. sure. Like people knew yes. what was up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I was definitely huge door opener. I mean, if you call. And the beauty is you don't have to buy my whole book. Because I don't have a book. Yeah, right. Just you know, buy, buy a couple cases of Montcore. Right. You can, you know, you can almost do one and one at this point. Um, so that was a dream for those nine months. I sold out of all my wine, and um, I was looking for something to do in the summer because um, I didn't have anything to do until I got more wine. And um, I really wanted to be out in Montauk because I'd spent summers out there for years and um, was learning how to surf and really wanted to pursue that. And Robert, I remember talking to Robert Bohr, who had been my partner in crime, you know, for five years or something. Still is, but was really in those days. Um, Not like in a business sense, but you guys used to hang out. That's it. We were, you know, best buds and went everything, went went everywhere together, did everything together. Um, And he said, oh, good, because I'm looking for someone to be the sommelier at Nick and Tony's, because he did the list there. Yeah, he was tied into that. Yes. And until... Very recently. Very recently. Until a couple of years ago. Because Jordan worked there. And- exactly. A, a bunch of us went through there. And um, 
you know, he just said, I need someone I can trust. I do the list, which was perfect for me. And it was an amazing list because he had all this consignment wine on it. So that was the first time I really got to taste like old Bordeaux. And, you know, I don't, I still to this day don't drink Bordeaux really. I mean, who can afford it when it's drinkable? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a really great experience. And uh, I was, I did that for four years in the summers just to be able to spend a lot of time out east. Which was great, and you still like travel. I always see like a, a tweet from you, like coming back from Bod Talk, like you. Yes. to this day, you're... yes, we rent a house there six months of the year, and so I mean, I met I met my husband there. Uh, we got married there. It's very much our happy place and our sort of our salvation. When you have two small kids in New York at a small apartment, if you can get out and get in nature, and you know, surf and mountain bike and and road ride and do all that stuff that really kind of feeds your soul, it helps a lot. So we're very lucky to be able to do that. And then under Willette Wines, which was your company at the time, you did develop kind of a broader portfolio mm-hmm. for, for a bit. I had known Becky and Peter from um, Burgundy when I lived there. This was the Wassermans. The Wassermans. And they um, and a woman named Carolyn, who's now Karen, Carolyn Benet-Jolie, is Becky's right-hand woman. But She's she, really smart. She's amazing. But she worked for, uh, for Butterfield at the time. Oh, I didn't know that. And she was dating, or maybe even married to, I think, a guy named Ted Talley, who now distributes Rosenthal's book on the West Coast. He has a little thing called Terra Firma, I think, a, a small company. Um, so I knew Carol. She'd gone to Becky. We reconnected. And, you know, Becky has a lot of distributors in New York, which is very smart because she doesn't put all her eggs in one basket. And they had a, a bunch of really great wines, including a bunch of champagne. Um, Burgundy's Camille which I started with at the time, which I still work with. And you used to have like back vintages and stuff, right? Yeah, we still get those library vintages, which is super cool. Um, and, um, I, you know, probably half, a good half of my book was from Becky, which was wonderful because when you're running a small business and you can't, you know, I'd go to France twice a year, but I had to get everything in, in those two trips. You know, when you're the main salesperson, you can't also like be driving around the Mackinac for five days just to find a Macon. Right, right, right. The way Kermit did. And when Kermit did it, you could discover Ravenau. Yeah. You could just be like, hey, what's good around here? And people would be like, right. oh, this guy is pretty much the star. And he didn't have an importer. Exactly. And um, so, you know, thank God for Kermit. He's certainly the grandfather of what I do. But um, he also, timing is everything. And that was, you know, great timing for him. Um so it was great to be able to walk into Becky's office on an afternoon and taste through 10 Maconay and then just pick one. And so um she's, she's picked some winners. Amazing. And she's still a great resource for us. We still work with her at Grand Cru. So. In fact, she introduced uh Kermit to Revenue. This is the story. Amazing. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. She used to be his agent. And she was. That's she, right. And she was the one who told him that's right. to, to pick Revenue. And she had originally been uh, working with like a barrel maker, Sergio mm-hmm. Moreau. And that's how she knew all these guys, because she used to go and be a salesman for them. It's amazing. And then, like, she was kind of like the emissary for the American expatriates who would come over there. Like, she would let them hang in her house and stuff, still to this day. And Russell would cook. And, you know, she's a a very inspiring woman, very strong. um, And she's seen a lot, and she's survived a lot. So, yeah, she's quite an inspiration. Um, And a great palette and a great lady. And she's stuck with things. Like yes. she told me like how hard it was to build a market for cat yard and stuff. And she oh. just, she didn't go like, Oh, well the Americans don't want it. So I'm not going to carry it. She yep. like for years yep. tried to make it happen. You know? Absolutely. I think about those original women in the wine business, like Martine mm-hmm. and Becky, and they must've had, I mean, they must've, they are, they're tough and they have, they had to be, I mean, think about it. 
Like, it's not only was a man's world then, but it was a man's world in France. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, they're super different personality-wise, but they're very, both very, like, they have strong backbone. Yeah. You know, they're both, like, as you say, tough. You yeah, know? yeah, survivors, you know. Um, so, yeah, so then, you know, Willette Wines was about six years old, and um, I was, you know, at a point where I was struggling a little bit. I never sort of, I never recovered from 08. Really? Um, With the... Yeah, I mean, when the downturn happened, it was October. I mean, it couldn't have been a worse time. If it was January, we would have sold the wine, had a bunch of cash in the bank, and then proceeded from a different, you know, in a different way. Because the holidays was the big time for restaurant sales. Yeah. And and retail. And I had a ton of wine on the water, and it all hit, and then suddenly the market just dropped. So um, I was talking to Roy Welland, who was a partner both in Willette and then had started Grand Cru Selections with Robert and Ned. And I was speaking to Bowler about sort of becoming part of their book. And, um, David Bowler. Yeah. And uh, talking to Michael and Harmon as well, because I just wanted to sort of make sure. I was only going to do this once, so what was the right route? And uh, and Grand Cru just made a lot of sense. You know, they wanted to take my whole, all my salespeople. The people um, who work for you. Yeah, and that, that was really on. important because... Um, you know, David Bowler just had his own sales team. I mean, he, right. you know, he was willing to work with me, but he really didn't need everyone. Yeah. Um, he had very strong people in all of those regions, and I didn't want to just do what was right for me. I wanted to do what was right for the people who had really helped me get to that point and worked really hard for me. And um, so, and and Robert called and he said, you know, what's your hesitation? I And I said, well, you know, we've been such good friends for so long. I don't know if we should work together. And he yeah. said, you know, we haven't really seen each other that much in the last five years because we're both so busy. You're married with kids. And if we don't work together, we're never going to hang out again, you know? And that was such a great way to think of it. And I'm so glad he did. I mean, not only did they offer me partnership, which was huge, you know, that's a big deal when you've had your own business, but... And this was with Grand Crew. With Grand Crew. But to uh, to work with Robert and Ned, who I who are two of the funniest people ever and um, especially when they're together oh because they play off each it's other a show. yeah yeah it's a show it's theater and uh i mean ned's just i mean he, i just laugh all day long but um you know robert still to this day travels a lot and so it's not even that i see him that much even though we work together so yeah. it's it's been really i feel really lucky that that all worked out and it took a minute for it to integrate of course mm-hmm. but as things do yes of course um but it's really nice to have partners actually because you know, I am a mom of two, and I—it's you know—you can't do everything all the time. So, so what's Grand Crew up to these days? Well, we're um, trying to grow the book for sure, mm-hmm. um, and we've added some cool new producers, both small and large. And the other thing for me personally is that for some weird reason, I only had French wine at Willette Wines. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like yeah, that's true. I never thought about that. You know, considering my love of Italy and that I yeah. flew in Italian and all of that, for some reason, Italian wine. There were a lot of small Italian companies when I started. And, you know, Italian wine, for better or worse, you're either in it or you're not. It's a ghetto, in a way. It's, I it's mean... A, it's Italian selling to Italians. It's mafia. I mean, with, like, not the bad word, use of right. the word, but the sort of... It's Italian selling to Italians. And I just did a lot of Italian wine at Skernick. I sold to a lot of those guys. But unless you have a couple really great names that will get you in the door, or if you're an all-Italian book with a lot of really small, cool, idiosyncratic things... Um, they, you know, they just don't have time for you, and I don't blame them, you know. So, um, so it's been really 
I, for some, whatever reason, it will let the opportunity for me was really with French wine. Mm-hmm. And it made sense. Burgundy and Rhone, obviously. I mean. Um, At time, you know, and those have only grown in market presence. For sure. Then. For sure. And I mean, Burgundy on its own is not a business decision. I mean, on the contrary, you know, business decision is probably like Chilean mm-hmm, Malbec mm-hmm. or something. But why um, is that? Even though there's the demand, is it just because the price points are so high, or there's so such little quantity? It's um, well, I think a first major part of it is vintage variation. I see. I mean, certainly that's evening out a little bit mm-hmm. with global warming, but still, I mean, you know, you have these vintages you that want to get stuck holding the 04 bag. That's right. I mean, 04 is a perfect example. And then even when you have, you have a great vintage like 05, and then you have good vintages that come after that, 06, 07, 08, but everybody bought so much 05 because it was such a landslide that they kind of don't pay attention to 06, 07, 08. And then 09 comes and, you know, it's sort of the cycle of you've got a lot of good to, you know, good vintages in between the great ones. And that is very hard, and they're expensive, and you have a bad vintage, and it, or you have a vintage like 10 where you just have half the quantity of, so suddenly you don't have that much to sell. With 12. Exactly. And the price doesn't really go down. Like, even if it's, of course not. On the contrary, because they have less to sell, you know? Um, So it's a labor of love. It's about passion and needing to have those wines Mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. than, you know, wow, this is really going to make me a lot of money. And that's something that's, I think, always been really evident to you or to me about you is that you really dig on Burgundy. Oh, yeah. It's not even a question. You know, it's like, hey, Liz is coming over. What should we open? Well, I got an idea. Starts with B. You know what I mean? Yeah, for better or worse. It's not an inexpensive uh, proposition. But but there are a lot of great inexpensive wines in Burgundy now, which we all know as well, because those peripheral peripheral areas are now developing, which is so cool. I mean, that you can get great Marcinet and Marange and Santenay and, I mean— it's not bone Romanet, but for every day, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. And maybe a little more approachable younger. And the Maconet, and yeah, exactly. So so you guys are adding uh, producers in in, uh, in Italy and other places yep. in, for Grand Cru. We are. We're looking for some, um, we're always adding, you know, some smaller wines. Like we have a new Corbiere and um, things like that. See more the south of France is a growth area? Everyday wines. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're necessarily targeting the South of France. Mm -hmm. I think we're targeting anything that makes sense from both a, you know, we just added Steinmetz, for example. We have one German wine now, but those are beautiful dry Rieslings and they're really well-priced. So that's a beautiful example of, wow, we can get a really great producer who's young and kind of up and coming. And yet he's really well-priced, which we also need because we have a lot of expensive wine, which is fabulous, but. It's, you need everyday wine, too. And it's also true that, I mean, maybe somebody doesn't always... We talked about how great it is to to be in a book where you have some options, but sometimes it's nice to have the attention where you're the only German guy in the book as opposed to Absolutely. the hundred German guys in a book yep. where you could get a little lost in a mix. You know what I mean? Yeah. some books are heavy yep. and others, you know, you can really focus in on dude and introduce them to your Absolutely. Your you can be a very big fish in a small pond. And, you know, I mean, a great example is I sold... Three times as much Moncourt with Willette than Skernick did. And that's no diss on Skernick. It's just Skernick had 2,000 wines in the book. And I also had the Hermitage and all that stuff. But that was my only wine. And for and to this day, it's still, in my opinion, our most important producer. And so. Well, you brought an example today. I did. Uh, it looks like you got some San Joseph 02 from Jean Louis Schaff here. 
which is really cool to taste it with some age. Well, it's called, this is the Domaine San Joseph. So mm-hmm. he makes, he now makes more, which I'll chat about, but um, at the time. So this is 02. He didn't even make Ophiris in 02 because it was not a good vintage. Yeah, it was a lot of rain that year, right? Yeah. And I remember when the Hermitage was released, we had a little salon for him at Keen's in one of those upstairs rooms where all the Psalms could come. Return to the scene of the crime for Ned Benedict, huh? Exactly. And taste it so that, because everyone was so dubious that they should buy. Yeah, everyone gets swayed by the $110 Hermitage. I remember like Tim Kopeck coming in, very dubious, and then being like, oh, it's good. Okay, cool. Um, and it was fun for everyone to sort of have a some time with Jean-Louis, which, you know, is a rare thing. He's such a, like, he has so much energy. It's right. incredible. Like, you know, he's like a ball of energy. He's got a lot of energy, but he's also a true winemaker, sort of like what I would call a true chef, which is someone who doesn't ever really want to talk to the public, per Mm -hmm. se. I mean, he's very, when you're in his cove, it's like E.F. Hutton. I mean, he's so, when he speaks, you listen, and what he has to say is really profound. But that's his realm. And then, you know. He's not looking for sales feedback. Not at all. Yeah. He does not want to stand and do a wine dinner. And I don't blame him. Um, he wants to, his head is in the vines and that's where he wants to be. And that's, you know, what he obviously does well. And and let's not forget, it's a lot of pressure when people, when your family's been making wine since 1481, there's a little pressure. It's I mean, like it's, Roberto Conterno, same same kind yeah, of deal. Like he, It's a beautiful thing, a, pre, a great pressure to, to sort of inherit, but pressure nonetheless. You're under a lot of microscopic attention. Mm, for sure. Um, so this was a vintage, I just bought these, Bottles back. I got four bottles from someone I sold this to a while ago. Oh, that's nice of you to open one up. And I saw an offer for it, and I was like, ooh, perfect. So I was was curious to taste it, because I tasted it upon release. And so the Domaine Saint-Joseph was always the rarest wine. It was the wine I got the least of, including the Hermitage. And it came from mainly a vineyard called Lamps, which is spelled L-E-M-P-S. It's all Syrah grown on granite, owned by the Shavs. But it's one of these vineyards that is, it's terraced, it's very steep, and it, um, this one woman worked it, and when she'd, she'd spend all this time clearing it and making it beautiful, and then she'd get to the top, and she'd have to start all over again at the bottom. I mean, and this was her life's work, and just maintaining this vineyard. Um, and then, so this is, 09 was the first, was the, 08 was the last vintage where it was just these vineyard sites. And then Jean-Louis got an opportunity to buy a vineyard called Les Clos, Les Clos Florentin, it's called. And like Parker talks about it, you know, they, they back in the days when you really read Parker, you know, you could, could um, talk about it. And um, I don't mean that, that I don't, I don't sit and read the, the catalog anymore, you know, with Parker, I think. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm not trying to, you know. It's absorb. a little different now. I think people, especially like yourself, are a little bit more confident in their own palate. Yeah. And you're it, like, when you're. I don't need you to. I mean, I remember me. when that used to come to Aaron in my apartment in France and we would just devour it. Yeah, I mean, that's how I through. learned who all those people were, you know. There was also less published back then. For sure. To read. You know, For now sure. it's like, oh God, I got another thing oh to gosh, read. Oh my gosh, that's know? all you need. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so. The And, you know, Jean-Louis is very passionate about San Joseph, and he's very passionate about Syrah grown on granite, because as Raj spoke about, granite gives a freshness to these wines that sort of translates as acid, but it's more of a—it's less acid and more just freshness of the granite. Um, and particularly in the white wines, I mean, 
those wines do not age. They age forever, but they do not age on acid. They age on alcohol. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. so they um, get pretty big in youth. Like the 06 mm-hmm. white Hermitage is, it's a big boy. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, a lot of fruit there. So I'm hoping I can age on alcohol. I mean, I <laughs> it's a good preservant. No, I'm just kidding. But um, so now what's happened is he bought this vineyard called Lake Clo, which was owned by a family of homeopathic doctors. Mm-hmm. The vineyard was only worked by hand or by horse, only treated with homeopathic remedies. And they came to him and they said, you know, we have four. I mean, he knew the. He, they didn't have to tell him. He knew this vineyard very well. But you know, four hectare of of Syrah on granite and four two hectare of Roussan on granite. So he bought it. So as of 09, you've got a, the Chlorflorentin blended in with this wine right here. And this wine always had a much more burly black olive kind of profile. Yeah. And the Chlorflorentin is a very elegant ethereal. And so together, they've kind of lifted the San Joseph. And now the great news is there's a little more too, which is great. And Not he makes that more. white because he makes that Roussan on he granite. He makes that white. And then half of that goes into Ophrys now as well, half of the red. So Ophrys has also really elevated in its quality. It used to be 10 vintners blended together, and now it's half Shav and then a couple other vintners. Because I remember it actually used to be hard to find. We used to have it on a tasting menu with Danielle, and I would go to a table and no one had ever seen it before. Yeah. The Ophrys white. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, is that what it's called? It's Ophrys white, right? Or is it It's actually, it's San Joseph Blanc, but it's called Celeste. Celeste, that's yeah. right. And it had the little picture of the girl but it was hard to see in it yeah they always do they name them after these folkloric local sort of characters so celeste is i think over us is like the god of the harvest or the bounty or something well it feels very pretty and in so many ways we kind of came full circle yeah from hanging out with aaron who became aaron shav to drinking shav with you thanks liz thank you so much thanks for being very happy to be here thanks for the opportunity All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.